Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, just want to make sure that you're following along with the Lincoln Project on all of our coverage regarding the January 6th committee hearings. Testimony has been explosive. The evidence has been damning against Donald Trump and his attempt to steal the 2020 election. I hope you'll follow us and understand just how close we were to losing it all. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trig Veals, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigvy, welcome back. It's great to be back, Reed. So, Trig, let's jump right in. This past Thursday night, as we're recording this, the 1-6 committee reconvened in prime time for day eight of their proceedings. The session was led by Representatives Elaine Luria, Democrat from Virginia, and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, and I want to talk about that again in a second. But it focused on the roughly three hours between Trump's January 6th speech at the Ellipse, where he encouraged rioters to march down to the Capitol, to when he tweeted at 4.17 for those rioters to go home. Live testimony was provided by Matthew Pottinger, former Deputy National Security Advisor, and Sarah Matthews, a former Deputy Press Secretary at the White House. It's also worth noting that Chairman Benny Thompson tested positive for COVID earlier in the week, so he wasn't able to sit on the panel that night, but Vice Chair Liz Cheney assumed the role of presiding over the hearing, maintaining order in the room, and swearing in witnesses. So what were your main takeaways, Trigby? And it can't only be that Josh Hawley runs like a scared weasel when he thinks somebody bad is coming for him. He runs like insane bolt, not Usain. <laughs> I mean, it's stunning when they take you through what we saw on January 6th in slow motion on so many levels. And I think they did a really solid job of doing it. You know, at the end of the day, you're talking about what was clearly probably the greatest crisis that the U.S. government faced maybe since World War II or maybe going back to the Civil War as a direct threat to the state. I would say that it was probably the greatest threat to the United States government since the night of Abraham Lincoln's assassination, when they also attempted to kill the Secretary of State and the Vice President in April 1865. A great book by Jay Winnick, by the way, if you have not read it. Yeah. And so when you think about that, this was precipitated by the president of the United States. So you have that. But then you have the president precipitating the crisis. And because he precipitated the crisis, being completely derelict and out of pocket at that moment, which is the whole point of, you know, at a most foundational level of what the president is supposed to do, all enemies foreign and domestic in the oath. And so, you know, it was staggering. I don't think in some ways, while it was shocking, the idea that Pence was in mortal danger and his Secret Service agents were texting family members, it's not surprising. I mean, that is what it was. What's surprising about it, and probably what's shocking for people, is the 1-6 committee made that real. It put 
all of America in the room, at least America that was watching it. And that piece of it is staggering. And you had the president, basically because he'd precipitated it, he didn't care. I want to say something about that all because I think that that timeline encapsulates all of what this is really about, Trigby, which is at 2.24, Donald Trump tweets that Mike Pence had let him down, that he wasn't going to stand up, he wasn't going to be brave. And that created a surge in the rioters, in the insurrectionists in the Capitol looking for Pence. He was signing Mike Pence's death warrant. He was signing the death warrant of Pence's family, of his staff, and of his Secret Service detail. And you heard the you know, disguised voice of the, what they called a White House security official, as you noted, talking about, tell my family I love him. Like, nobody went to their rescue. They left him up there, right? They were going to leave those guys to die up there. Here's the thing is, the, and I, I've said this before, you know, one of the tactics that autocratic actors use is threats, repression, and violence. And the other thing that we saw that maybe people didn't notice, he didn't just sign Mike Pence and those Secret Service guys' death warrants. By using Mike Pence, who had been the most loyal of soldiers to Donald Trump, he was signing the death warrants for all the rest of these guys who were up there. Anybody that they got their hands on, they wanted retribution and, in their mind, justice because Donald Trump had given them the order. And the reason you saw Josh Hawley, who was so bold, giving the fist and a massive enabler of what happened, running the way he did is because he understood that that mob didn't care. If they were willing to hang Mike Pence and kill those Secret Service agents, they would have done the same to Josh Hawley or Mitch McConnell or anybody that they got their hands on. And I think that becomes the real piece of it. And all those guys knew it, and they still know it to this day. All those who are enabling, all those who are being quiet. And I think part of the power of what they did last night is they took McConnell at the start of it. They used the Kevin McCarthy tapes that Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns, the story that they broke with McCarthy and what he was saying days after. And they, in essence, also provided testimony from them by using what they were saying in an incredibly powerful way. And the fact that they all knew that it wasn't just Mike Pence. Donald Trump would have been happy with any blood of anyone in Congress on his hands. And I thought that Cheney was probably the perfect person to deliver these things, right? Which is these nut-cutting audio tapes, video, the Holly running down the hallway, which has now spawned thousands and thousands of memes and will haunt him for his career and God bless for it. We all remember Eugene Goodman telling Romney to go the other way and just barely getting away from the mob. McCarthy even talking about on Fox News, having talked to Trump and said, you know, my staff is running away. We're all running for cover. You saw the, for the first time the phone call between the congressional leaders in the Pentagon saying, when the hell are you getting people down here? And then a reiteration of Mike Pence based on a conversation he was having with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, saying, get the National Guard down here, get them down here now. And then Pat Cipollone, did he call Secretary of Defense? No. Did he call Bill Barr? No. Did he call the chairman of the Joint Chiefs? No. Did he call the Secretary of Homeland Security? No. And not only that, we should never forget, Trigby, that in this whole thing, just as an aside on the National Guard, that on January 4th, there was a memo from the acting secretary of defense that specifically said that the Guard could not be deployed but for with his personal authorization. So they knew, at least I'm going to take it as they knew, Trigby, that something was going to go down 
and they wanted it to go down. You know, for me personally, one of the things I keep coming back to is, and you'll remember this, you know, Donald Trump gave that speech on election night. And when you see that speech where he came in the White House and he basically, frankly, we did win this election and the election was far from over. And in fact, he wasn't winning the election. I remember thinking at the time, and I think I said this to you, that I around the world had seen some screwed up shit and that might have taken the cake. It certainly was something I never thought I would see. This was in the works long before January 6th. It was in the works long before December 17th. I mean, Steve Bannon said as much. This was in the works, and you make the point often, there was a failure of imagination. I mean, we talked at one point, all of us at the Lincoln Project, and you recall this in September, early September, but we, along with everybody else, were like, well, that can't happen here. And what we saw is the culmination of it happening here. And we came dangerously close. I mean, that's the whole thing with the video that they were showing in the audio of the Secret Service guys. They were really unsure whether they could get Pence out of where they had him. And had Eugene Goodman, he'll go down in history, or should, as one of the Americans who literally saved democracy. Let me just say this. There should be a statue to Officer Eugene Goodman in Statuary Hall. But for his bravery, his quick thinking, and his willingness to put himself before that mob, we might be in a very different place. But let me talk about one other thing about Cheney and Kinzinger. So Cheney, as I said, was leading the committee last night, and she noted that McCarthy had refused to add more members, Republican members, to the committee. And Liz Cheney and Kinzinger have been two of the prime prosecutors, for lack of a better way to put this, and nearly all of the non-law enforcement witnesses, or I think all of the non-law enforcement witnesses so far, Trigvi, have been dedicated Republicans, Trump loyalists, Trump lawyers, people who served in his administration. And then I think, too, you see so many of the folks who haven't yet testified, but they have on tape from Kushner on down. These were people who were admitting First, that they knew he lost, and secondly, that they knew this was bad. One thing I do want to say, though, Trigby, is like, this is how out of touch even some people are, is like, you know, when they finally got Trump to make his remarks in the, in the Rose Garden, which he didn't want to do, they talked about how ex just mentally exhausted everybody was at the White House, while the riot is still going on. They're spent, Trig. They're, they're oh, I can't do any more today. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine, do you think Zelensky's guys aren't tired? They're continuing to fight because the state's under threat in Ukraine. I think when we look at all of them on the committee, you know, there's some people on the left who have been voicing positions like Liz Cheney's getting too much credit. She's not a hero or whatever. What I would say is I thought Loria, Benny Thompson, all of those guys on the committee, what they're doing has elements of being heroic in the sense that. If you think about America's greatest moments, when boys were storming off the boats in Normandy, when firefighters were running into the World Trade Centers knowing they weren't going to make it back, none of them were asking who they voted for in the last election or whether they were red or blue. They were, America's in trouble, I have to act. And whether it's Eugene Goodman or the people on the committee or the people who have chosen to come and step forward and testify, and there seems to be more of them. Those are kind of the moments that we're seeing more and more people being willing to do that. So there's an element to me of this seeking of truth 
that we have to go through and the reconciliation, which Republicans have tried to ignore, that is in the best of America at a moment that was the absolute worst of one individual's desire and a cadre of enablers around them to take that away from us. And so certainly Cheney has done an amazing job. I thought her closing was phenomenal. I thought Kinzinger and Loria, when you think about it, two people on the opposite sides, both of them, one is not running again. Loria is certainly in a, in a really challenging district, and this probably politically isn't good, but she's throwing the politics be damned. She took an oath in Congress. You know, They both took an oath in the U.S. military, and they're honoring that oath to country first. You know, we sometimes get trapped in, for lack of a better word, the evil that occurs in events. But we saw some of the best of ourselves. And the question is, are we willing to embrace that and seek that truth and reconciliation? And I think they went a long ways towards doing that last night. Well, and I've said this before recently, is that everywhere I go, Trigby, and I've met with incredibly wealthy individuals in the Northeast you know, Latino activists in Las Vegas, African-American leaders in places like Philadelphia and Detroit, just otherwise patriotic, normal Americans. And they hate all of this. They hate all of it. They want it to end. And the implicitness in there is like, they all know it won't end so long as Trump is lurking. And so I think that's one thing as we're recording this this morning, Jonathan Swan from Axios had a very deeply researched, it's probably 3,000 words, Trigby, story this morning about all of the pro-Trump, pro-MAGA organizations that have sprung up since he left office that, as we've talked about, are well-resourced, well-staffed, relentless, and preparing for his return to office in 2025 with the express purpose of dismantling if not totally destroying the federal government as we have known it since the end of World War II and replacing it specifically with pro quote unquote America first and pro MAGA people for the purposes of going faster and further than Donald Trump could ever personally imagine in his own brain, because that's not how his brain works, but very much in the Steve Bannon as architect of this kind of stuff and Tucker Carlson as the emotional id of this movement. We cannot and should not and will not take for granted the fact this guy's coming back. He's going to run again. And if you believe the rumors of, oh, Ron DeSantis is going to take him on and beat him, okay, sure, that the Republican donor set has written him off. They don't want him back. I believe that there is a healthy cohort that don't, but I believe that there are just as many, if not more, that will come running back to him if they think they need to. And that also that there was a story, I believe, in Politico this morning that Republican elected officials like they're not done with him. They're sticking by him. Right. And then you add to that Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Republican gubernatorial nominee, 2020 election denier has said out loud he'll steal it for the guy. The people in Michigan running for governor said they'll steal it for the guy. The people in Wisconsin election deniers, Carrie Lake running in Arizona for governor, Blake Masters running for Senate in Arizona, election deniers. And so, like, yes, we all want Trump to go away. He ain't going away. He's not gone. And he's not going to be gone until and unless we make sure that his political career in this country is put in the ground and sealed off like Yucca Mountain with radioactive waste or maybe, you know, the stuff that you do at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean where you don't want this shit to ever bob up again. 
But like the idea that we want to believe that we've moved on from this epoch, this era in our politics, it started seven years ago and it's as strong, if not more energetic than it was then, because back then it was ill-formed. Nobody knew what it was going to be. Now these people know what they want. They know they have the ability to move things. They know that they have willing acolytes and they know that they have at least an even money bet, Trigvi, of this November, just a hundred days or so on, of electing enough people in enough places that if Trump were to win the Republican nomination in 2024, that he would have at least an even money bet of having the election stolen for him on his behalf that November. And if you think it's hyperbole, guys, look back at what we just saw over the last eight hearings. These are people who will do anything for him. If you do not believe that so many of these people who Trigby waited until January 6th to finally say enough is enough, would not go running back. If those people would not still be working in the White House if the coup had been successful, it's sitting there, it's in front of us, and I do not believe we can or should ignore it. And I know we're all sick of him. I'm sick of him. I wish he'd go away, but he isn't. And we can't allow him to ever, ever occupy the Oval Office at the White House at the pinnacle of American and world power again. And this is the thing. All autocrats have a singular objective, and I saw this all over the world. It's gaining and maintaining power. And they did not maintain power that day over the U.S. government because the guardrails held. And we were lucky, which is what the January 6th committee showed yesterday. We were incredibly lucky that those guardrails held. And it was a few American individuals who allowed that to happen. That being said, Donald Trump has not lost his control of the Republican Party. There is no permanent governing coalition without the insanity of Donald Trump. And all these people who've appeased or enabled, they're missing the point. And the irony in all of this is they do this under the mantle of making America great again, when in reality, they want to tear down so many of the institutions that are what has made America great. And the U.S. Congress on the Republican side after the 2022 elections is going to have more of these ultra-mega people in it than they currently have. I mean, when you go from Rob Portman, who granted has been no profile and courage, to J.D. Vance, that's moving from somebody who is certainly a liberal, small l, to somebody who is illiberal. You know, if you were to go to from Toomey to Oz and at house level, it's happening all over and a lot of them are going to win. So the center of American politics has to be the kinds of coalitions of Democrats, of independents, of people who, even if you feel that both parties are failing you, coming together and saying, you know what, democracy is not failing us, because that's what's really on the ballot in Pennsylvania in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in those governor's races, and Arizona potentially, that are all existential threats to our ability to have a free and fair presidential election in 24 and a peaceful transition of power. Those states that you're talking about, Nevada to a degree too, they're existential threats, not just because it usually matters who's the governor of the state, but because we won't be able to have elections because they're going after those foundational peace of our democracy, which is we adjudicate who has power through elections and have peaceful transitions, and they will not honor that. Well, and think about this on that peaceful transition piece. Jason Miller, 
not a profile in courage of any sort, even in that hearing during his testimony about January 7th, when they were trying to get Trump to go and make a statement. And he said, peaceful transition of power. And Miller said, well, the peaceful part's out the window. So why don't we go with orderly instead? When Jason Miller is your moral compass, you're, you're probably pretty <laughs> fucking, fucking bankrupt. My apologies for the language, gang, but Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, right. When Jason Miller has to say, Mr. President, eh, I don't know. But then, you know, just to circle back to that, on January 7th, the evening, he gives a speech, right, a taped speech, and Ivanka is off camera coaching him, right? It's Ivanka who's coaching him through these remarks. He says, I don't want to say the election is over. I'm not going to say the election is over. And he keeps banging the podium, like with this weird sneer on his face. And you can tell Trigby in that moment that this is a physically painful act that he knows he has to take, but he doesn't want to. He viscerally and desperately does not want to do that because it, he knows it's an admission that he's got to leave office on January 20th, but he doesn't want to do it. And I think that if there's anything that's more telling about who and what Donald Trump is and what he desperately wanted in those hours, in that, say, 36 hours, was that he knew that the coup had failed, that he wasn't going to be able to stay in office, but he would be damned if he was going to admit it. Yeah, because he didn't want to admit it, because when you get back to gaining and maintaining power, he, he had to leave the door open to coming back because he more than anyone knew what he had done and that it exposed him to real consequences of his actions. And the only way to, at that point, try and protect himself from that was to continue down the path that he had gone down. And in truth, the consequences for Donald Trump, because he passed that line of what I call the Hodorkovsky rule, where standing and trying to fight to maintain power was of no greater threat to him than had he left because of the actions that he had taken. And the truth is, though, I think about this a lot, and you're hearing it, we're all hearing this more and more. People are really tired because the two, particularly the Republican Party, has become so extremist. And on the right, at least the right of center, there's a belief that parts of the left are extremist. You have a whole lot of people in the United States today who are basically tired of what we have because we have a, a country that's locked in a set of binary choices where the system is failing because the primaries are so loaded with those two extremes. You know, I was sitting on the bench at my hockey game and crazily enough, some of the guys down the bench, all in their 50s and 60s, were having a conversation about how both parties were just completely bankrupt and they wish they had other choices. And you're seeing that in some places. You're seeing these kind of unique coalitions come together. I mean, you're out in Utah, right? Like the fact that in Utah, one of the two most Republican states in the country, you have Evan McMullen running as an independent against Mike Lee. He's probably within, what, five to seven points, and he's building a new coalition. There's a Deseret News poll out this week as we're taping that had Mike Lee at 41, Evan at 39. Now, just for note, I live in a Mormon state, right? It is predominantly Mormon politically, religiously, financially, governmentally, from a media perspective. The Deseret News is the LDS newspaper, the Salt Lake Tribune. Owned by the Huntsman family, nominally LDS, but it doesn't represent the church like the Desert News does. And you're absolutely right. Now, the fact that Lee is only at 41 should be alarm bells going off all over his campaign headquarters, but you're absolutely right. But this was where I think also, too, Trigby, 
that the Democratic Party in Utah, which represents about 13% of voters, so let's be clear, made the strategic move that says, if we put up a Democratic candidate, Mike Lee will win going away. We're going to forego putting someone on the ballot this year for someone in an Evan McMullen, who is an independent, a self-avowed conservative. But if the point is that having Evan in office as a conservative independent is a net good, while having Mike Lee return to office for another six years is a net bad, net negative, then we'll take Evan. And that is a very smart thing that they have done. And I think it's something that we should consider. But I also want to say something about your hockey guys. And folks may not know, before we started the Lincoln Project, I spent like three or four years in the independent and political reform space. I actually tried to start a third party. We actually got one ballot line in New York State, which will disappear this November because New York State Democrats didn't want more parties. We should be clear about that. But I said this during my time in the wilderness, such as it was, was why should a country that has access to every bit of content ever created. You know, if you pick up your iPhone, you have access to every bit of human knowledge ever collected on earth. You can order anything you want off of Amazon and have it arrive in a couple of days at the most. But we are expected to pick from two political parties, neither one of which, as you know, and as I hear, represents the vast majority of the country on any given day. But I think that what you see is like Andrew Yang with his forward party. In my experience, we made the same mistake too, which is we're going to take a little bit of the left, we're going to take a little bit of the right, and we're going to be all things to all people. That's not what people want either. People don't want triangulation. They want belief. They want to know that you believe in a core set of principles like they do and that policy will flow from those principles, right? Policy in and of itself disconnected from some broader belief system doesn't mean anything, right? It's mechanics, it's logistics, it's the distribution of money and or services. But there has to be a reason why you are elected in the first place, right? Which is why people like us who deal in belief do not typically govern, right? Because governing is a different set of things. But you can't govern legitimately unless the people whom are putting you in office, broadly agree that you, A, represent them, which in too many places we don't, and B, that when you get there that you're doing it for at least the semblance of the right reason, which is you are in service to your constituents, to your district, to your state, ultimately to your country. And I don't think most Americans believe that, and I think they're right. Well, and think about this podcast. I had 160 people in my high school graduating class, eight of them when they know who they are, who are listening to this, will end up reaching out to me after I've been on that. That's 5% of my class. And they have very, very different views, but they've come together around a principle. And that principle is democracy is under threat and the way things are working now is not working. And they watch what happened on January 6th. And most of them would probably be kind of conservative leaning. But it's about uniting around values. And I think part of the reason why the parties are struggling as they've moved to the extremes is there is a belief that a lot of these guys, and Donald Trump would be an example of this, they don't really have a set of underlying values. They're about power for power's sake. And that's what we saw. And I think on the Democratic side, what I hear a lot from lifelong Democrats and also younger Americans who are probably far more progressive than you and I will ever be, is 
you made these promises for 40 years and you didn't do it, right? You abandoned the white working class. You abandoned the middle of the country. I mean, Trigby, it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, California has the same number of senators as Wyoming, right? But not a new problem, right? The Electoral College favors the middle of the country over the big states, right? But not a new problem. And that's what I say. You know, we often talk about the game we're in as opposed to the game you want to be in. But in this context, those are the rules of the game. If you can't find somebody as a Democrat who's electable in Montana, is that Montana's fault? Is that the Constitution's fault? Or is that your fault? And I just want to stick to the young people thing for a second, which is Kate Salkowitz, who's one of our incredible editors on our team, is a Gen Zer. And we asked the other day, like, what do you think? And she's like, my friends don't think any of it matters. In their lives, they never, they've never seen it matter. And remember that they are sort of the lost generation of, of our century, right? Maybe they remember 9-11, but probably not. Hurricane Katrina, Iraq and Afghanistan, the financial crisis, then Donald Trump and all this other stuff. So their lives have never had any stability from a perspective like we had, which is at least the Cold War, if nothing else, provided some level of stability and continuity in our lives, even if there was the underlying threat of mutually assured destruction and nuclear holocaust, right? But we knew that we had serious people. I mean, I think about Kate and the Gen Zs, you know, when Ukraine started, the number of the Gen Zs who work as part of the Lincoln Project, immensely talented. You know, a lot of them were reaching out to me asking, what does this mean, right? Because the Cold War is back. And one of the things that I said to him is, you have to keep in mind that you're part of, you know, strongest country on earth that's part of the strongest alliance that's ever been built of people who share the same values. And so you have to have comfort in that. I think the reason, part of the reason they feel that way, though, is they see what Pottinger was talking about. And Pottinger, I was texting with a friend who's in foreign policy. He's an incredibly serious guy, respected by people on all sides of the aisle. And he talked about how worried our allies and people around the world who we helped rebuild after World War II, who adopted democracy, all those in places I think about myself, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Russians who were reaching out to me, who are pro-democratic, who saw what happened on one sixth and were like, oh my God, what does this mean? When we talk about democracy, that's the core underpinning. And in truth, what you saw with Donald Trump and a lot of these enablers, they're not serious people. And during the Cold War, you know, there was a litmus test to be elected to office that you were serious about things like that. And it kind of gets back to my point. You know, you had 65 Republican mega members of Congress who voted to say, basically, we won't honor our NATO obligations. Well, if we're a country that doesn't honor those foundational obligations, those are the cores of what have made America great. So they don't even understand that. And I get why if you're a Gen Z, you're looking at all these things that have happened and are asking yourself, where are the serious people? Because our instability leads to all kinds of instability everywhere else. And I think I've said this to you before. You know, people say to me all the time, I don't want my kids to grow up or my grandkids to grow up in a America without democracy. And I always say to them, what you really don't want is your kids or grandkids to grow up in a world in which American democracy is failing because of the instability and what that means. Before the American experiment really took hold globally, really, which was the end of World War II, the world was a far less safe place. And we're starting to see elements of that, which is why I think the 1-6 committee 
is resonating with people because you're seeing people from both sides. And Loria and Kinzinger were the examples last night, being serious. And the other thing you're starting to see, and I think it's a good sign in polling, you know, the Republicans who are fleeing Trump and getting kind of fed up with the big lie are Republicans who are over the age of 70. In fact, about 9% have moved away and they're loyal voters. They vote in primaries. And they'll vote like 95% of the time. Correct. And that's what these strategists on the Republican side who thought that well, we want to talk about inflation or a million other things, anything other than this are missing because that's why you don't get the coalition without the insanity if you're not having truth and reconciliation. And that's what we saw last night was an attempt to get to truth. Now, the question is, will we reconcile this? And if we successfully do that, that's another moment of America rising because of some individuals to meet that moment. Well, and it's just one thing I, I want to say about the Republican Party, because we've seen this Ron DeSantis boomlet, right, governor of Florida, and all these, you know, stories about, you know, he's huge in Silicon Valley and the, you know, Republican elites are flocking to Tallahassee to bend the knee to the new king and that, you know, the Republican money guys, you know, they're all in. They're going to raise him a hundred million dollars and all this other stuff. I, there, there's a couple things. One is you haven't actually won your re-election, although you probably will. But two, it feels suspiciously like 2015 all over again. That like, oh, well, Trump's a joke. Trump's dead. Trump's on the decline. What they forget is like, he's still the king and the voters still love him more than they love anybody else. So it's just like, they're so desperate to move on that they don't believe that the world they're in. And like, sure, could Ron DeSantis win? I guess he could, right? But I think it also speaks to that sort of huge normalcy bias, right? They feel like if we could just get rid of Trump, everything will go back to normal. Well, you, A, you haven't gotten rid of him. And B, even if you did, you use that expression, the Overton window, we use it too much. Like they threw the Overton window out the window. And let's be clear, like Ted Cruz, he believes it's his turn too. Josh Hawley, despite of his flitting down the hallway of the Capitol, like he believes it's his turn. Tom Cotton believes it's his turn. Nikki Haley believes it's her turn. Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, they all think it's their turn. And so, you know, this idea that, you know, somehow like Ron DeSantis is going to somehow be this, you know, knight in shining armor that's going to save the Republican Party and subsequently the Republic is, is ridiculous. Well, on the other hand, one of the things that we see and DeSantos has been better at this, which is probably why you have people in the Republican Party who are like, OK, well, DeSantis, at least he's not Trump, but he's feeding off of the same things, right? When you know, I say often one side's extremism becomes the rationale for the other side. And, you know, DeSantos finds one example of something that he can portray as woke and the radical left, etc., and then drives that as the example for all. I mean, the greatest example of that, and the right has been doing this for a long time, the war on Christmas was about one shopping mall in St. Louis. You know, on the Democrat side, they have to be really cognizant that even if they feel like they're speaking about real grievance, and a lot of times they are, they have to do a better job of explaining why the grievance is real and not reacting emotionally. Because when they emo react emotionally, they end up giving battering rams to people like Ron DeSantos to whack them over the head with the center. And DeSantos is kind of a master at that. And he's using Disney as an example of that. But 
what DeSantis is also doing in using Disney is sort of threats and repression to say to the business community, you stay out or I'm going to go after you. And that's classic autocrat too. And it's a sign that all the names that you threw out of potential candidates to some degree or a lesser degree now have a precedent from Donald Trump to use those kinds of tactics in our politics that are antithetical to what our democracy is built upon. Well, and have any of them said that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election? None of them. None of them. None of them. And I think we were talking about this this morning, Trigby, remember that Pence, you know, said he wouldn't violate his duty, you know, to the Constitution, but he hasn't said that 2020 was a free and fair election and that Donald Trump lost fair and square. None of them, like, they don't want to cross the line to say it was stolen, but they won't say it's free and fair either, right? They want to live in this weird gray area. Well, and you know what? The ugly truth is they want to talk about the few places where people like Rathensburger have gotten through. But Rathensburger got through because 13% of Democrats crossed over and voted in the Republican primary in Georgia to bring him through because he did the right thing. What they don't want to talk about is, you know, Cox, who just got the nomination for governor in Maryland, total election denier, Doug Mastriano, a state that's an existential threat if Doug Mastriano wins in Pennsylvania. He's the norm. Whoever you're going to get in Michigan, all of them, not just not admitting that Joe Biden won, but actually going so far as to say they may not honor the results in 2024. Wisconsin, you have that dynamic going on in Arizona. And those are existential threats. The person who's running for secretary of state in Nevada, completely off the rails on that. And here's the thing, a reason why that that continues, aside from desire to be elected in the way they think, the only way they think they can, is that there was video, I think, of a guy you know, Robin Voss, who's the, I think, the speaker of the Wisconsin House of Representatives. We've been friends since high school. Yeah. He got a call from Trump recently saying, like, no, you still got to, like, overturn the election. You got to go back and do this. And Voss is like, that's not a thing. Like, that's not a thing. And now, in the, just going back to the swan piece briefly, is Trump has now completely internalized and intellectualized the fact that 2020 was stolen from him. Like, he ain't coming back. No, I think he truly believes that in his head. And now, you know, I think what you're seeing in Arizona and you're seeing in Wisconsin is, you know, they have this ruling by the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, and that's an elected body. It's supposed to be nonpartisan, but those races have become partisan. Wisconsin State Supreme Court ruled that drop boxes are illegal. Well, Trump and the Trump people are now trying to see if they can get a bunch of other states to pedal off of that ruling. And trying to create this thing, which is what Robin was saying, that's not a thing, that they would recall their electors. All they're trying to do is to call into question the foundation of how we elect candidates, which is and adjudicate who holds power, which is elections. They want to call that into question and cloud it because that works to their ends. In Robin's case and in Wisconsin, you know, the mistake that was made, and I would say this, I haven't talked to Robin about it, but I would say this to him. The mistake that was made was he tried to appease these people by appointing somebody to look into it. And that's playing the game along with them. When you give them an inch, they will take a mile. They will take as far as they can get. And that's classic autocrat too. Putin is probably the best global example of that. He pushes the bayonet in until he hits steel. It's why you got to stand up to these guys. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who's an incredible historian on Strongman, and if you have not read her book called Strongman, absolutely worth the read. And her post just out this morning 
She writes this, Tregby, to your point, quote, the authoritarian playbook has no chapter on failure. It has no pages on how to deal with becoming a national disgrace. Someone who is pelted with tomatoes and eggs when he appears in public after leaving office. So the recourse to violence by Trump on January 6th became the logical option, including a plan to take out his own vice president for disloyalty. As the hearing demonstrated last night, that violence was premeditated and integral to Trump's coup attempt. It was also, quote, bipartisan. It targeted Republicans and Democrats alike because strongmen like Trump have no allegiance to anyone but themselves as devoted elite and grassroots followers eventually realize. Yeah, I mean, I as you know, I've been giving for since 1-6 this presentation, which I call Faith or Fear. You saw both on display because that's democracy versus autocracy ultimately comes down to faith in each other or fear of one another. And you saw both. Excellent examples of both. You saw faith in each other. Benny Thompson can't be there. And it seemed like an anomaly that he would give the gavel to Liz Cheney. I bet they vote the same in Congress 10% of the time, 20% of the time. But he handed the gavel over to her. He knew she'd do the job. Yes. And you saw fear. Why hang Mike Pence? Because Donald Trump knew that if he made it very clear that he and his people were willing to hang the most loyal appeaser of them all, Mike Pence, that any of those members of Congress were vulnerable, not just AOC or Nancy Pelosi or those on the left. But that's why Josh Hawley was running like Forrest Gump. The reality is that's really the fight that we have. They want to make us afraid of each other, whether that's afraid of I'm a Democrat, I'm afraid to vote for a Republican who's committed to democracy because I might disagree with them part of the time. You know, I'm afraid of taking actions, you know, as a politician because I might lose my office or they're making threats against my kids like Kinzinger has faced, right? If we're going to win this battle, we have to have faith in each other. We have to have trust and we have to follow the lead that those people on the 1-6 committee are showing us, that you can have faith in each other. And I don't know if you noticed after, whatever station I was watching showed the members of the committee walking out. And you can see that they are Americans first who are on a mission and it has nothing to do with what party they're in. They genuinely like each other, you know, embracing each other, embracing the police who stood up for them. That is the kind of faith that we all have to have if we're going to win this battle. Because Donald Trump and his forces, Steve Bannon, the rest of them, they want to make us afraid. And I'll just say this as I'm reading Joseph Ellis's book, Founding Brothers, which came out more than 20 years ago now. And there's a big section on George Washington leaving office and his farewell address, as it's called. Remember, this is very early in the Republic, right? They didn't know, like we know, that it was going to make it. And what Washington asked for of his fellow citizens was they put aside short-term goals. They put aside narrow ideologies for the greater good of building the country of building the United States of America into what it could be. And it is not there today. We should not say that, right? That the American experiment is an experiment because it is ongoing, right? And we should always remember that. But as I ask the folks out there that are listening, who there are more of you every week and every month, and I cannot say thank you enough, is that what we ask, and I think the reason why so many people line up with us, Trigby, is because we say there are issues that we must confront as a nation. And that we should have serious, even impassioned discussions and disagreements about. But those things cannot occur until we resolve this problem, until we fight this battle, until we win this war. 
And without that gang, none of the rest of it happens, right? None of the rest of it happens. Do we need to confront the lingering issues of race in this country? We do. Do we need to address the yawning chasm of economic disparity in this country? We do. Do we need to address the fact that like San Bernardino, California is likely to be beachfront property in the next 25 years? We do. But those things and those discussions and those issues cannot happen until and unless we push out the most extreme element in this country, which is, I believe, the Republican Party's leadership, MAGA, as it is currently constituted, led by Donald Trump, led by Steve Bannon, led by Tucker Carlson. Because as these hearings, I think, Trigby, as we wrap this up, have shown, is that they will do anything to attain power and ultimately to remain in power. And if you don't think that this was a trial run, as we've said so many times in the past, that's what it was. They're learning. They're trying to figure out how to do it better next time. And if Donald Trump ever steps foot inside the Oval Office as anything other than a tourist again, then the things that we all truly care about go out the window. He should never be allowed to step in the Capitol again. I would say to all those Republicans that I've worked with over the years who are in office or those who are just activists who are listening, if he was willing to sacrifice Mike Pence, he would be willing to sacrifice you for that cause as well. And that's the irony of all of this. The first people who get lined up by autocrats are those who are loyal and cross them. And if Donald Trump comes back, all of these people who are appeasing, the Kevin McCarthy's, the Lindsey Graham's, you will be the first ones if you change sides that he will take to the gallows. It won't be those who've stood in opposition to him from the beginning. He will start with those who are appeasing because he understands that you're weak and you have an opportunity now to stand up and fight and do the right thing. And it might be a sad state of affairs, but it's also what makes America great that it seems that Cassidy Hutchinson, a junior staffer at the White House, had the courage to do that. You need to have that kind of courage too. You need to have the kind of courage that those two people did yesterday and those who spoke out because they saw her speak out. That's faith in each other. It's time to have that and stop being afraid. Well, amen to that. And Lots more from Trigby and me. Just programming note here, I think in a couple of weeks, Trigby and our other colleague, Jeff Timmer, will be back on to do another marathon election recap review prognostication. Trigby, as always, I want to thank you for joining me for another terrific conversation. Where can the gang listening find you online? They can find me at Twitter at Trigvy, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N. And by the way, Reed, I'm glad you said that about Timmer and I, because that will mean not that I don't like all the tweets at me, but it will be less tweets from people who are saying, when are you and Timmer going to go back on and walk through the races? So well, I'm glad we're doing that. Amen to that. As always, gang, too, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore LP underscore Galen. Thanks for joining us. If you have not yet, and I know you have not, sign up for the union. Join the union.us. All the stuff we're talking about doesn't happen without the hundreds of thousands of y'all that listen to this every month and make this podcast and make this movement happen. Join the union.us. Until next time, Trigby, thanks again. And gang, we'll see you later.
Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.